Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Oscar Wilde. Now let's get started with our story about Oscar Wilde. On February 14, 1895, with the triumphant London premiere of his play, The Importance of Being Earnest, Oscar Wilde reached the pinnacle of his literary career. But this rapid ascendance, beginning in 1890 with the publication of Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, not only established Wilde's professional reputation, it allowed him to continue to pursue a hedonistic, reckless, and covert lifestyle that destroyed his marriage, his prominence, and ultimately cost him his personal liberty. Despite his wife and two sons, Wilde descended into the depths of debauchery, engaging with much younger male prostitutes, and a blatant homosexual relationship with 21-year-old Lord Alfred Douglas, the son of John Sholto Douglas, the ninth Marcus of Queensbury. John Douglas was outraged by this relationship, and when his son, who the Marcus already considered spoiled, insolent, and unfocused, refused to break it off and even taunted his father, Douglas then decided to publicly attack Wilde. He accused him of being a homosexual, which in Victorian England, while rampant, was not only considered indiscreet, it was statutorily illegal and a serious matter. Egged on by his rebellious and immature paramour, Wilde decided to sue the Marcus of Queensbury for libel, a disastrous tactic that precipitated a series of trials, culminating with Wilde's imprisonment and banishment from civil English society. Sentenced to two years at hard labor, the maximum penalty under the law, Oscar Wilde was placed in solitary confinement at Pentonville Prison, only four months after the debut of The Importance of Being Earnest, his rapid downfall and disgrace utterly complete. Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde was born in Dublin, Ireland on October 16, 1854. His father, William, was a prominent ear and eye surgeon and specialist who built such a successful practice that he was able in 1844 to open a central Dublin clinic, partially philanthropic, to treat both paying and destitute patients. Wilde's father was also a well-rounded author who published diverse books and articles on topics concerning medicine, as well as travelogues, literature, and Irish history. William Wilde married his wife Jane, accomplished in her own right, on the 12th of November, 1851. Jane L.G. Wilde, despite her Anglo-Irish Protestant background, was a committed poet and writer who, under the pseudonym Esperanza, wrote impassioned critiques of British oppression in Ireland, the famine, and the British government. 
Her verse and work were well known throughout the country. Much to the relief of her much more conservative family, she eventually began to focus her attention on women's issues and literary criticism and translation. Her first son, William, nicknamed Willie, was born in September of 1852, and her second, Oscar, in October of 1854. Within a year, the young family moved to One Merrion Square, even then one of Dublin's most fashionable addresses. Both parents spent a great deal of time with their young family, frequently reading them poetry and short stories, and encouraging a healthy curiosity. Both sons were raised in an affluent household and began their education at home at an early age. William Wilde, not unusually for the time period, had three children out of wedlock, even before his marriage, all of which he acknowledged financially. And when his oldest illegitimate son also became a doctor, he was able to help at his biological father's clinic, freeing up William Wilde and his wife for trips across Europe. Governesses handled both the care and education of young Willie and Oscar, both during these absences and on an ongoing basis. The expansive house in Dublin was also a social hub of intellectuals and professionals of various different fields, the wild boys growing up in an environment of sophistication and privilege. Their idyllic childhood became even more pampered when William Wilde bought 170 acres in Western Ireland on the Luff Corrib. There he constructed a two-story manor house, one of the largest residences in the region. This became a second home and a retreat from city life for the Wilds and their children, including a daughter, Isola, born in April of 1857. William Wilde's 1864 knighthood added further luster to the family's reputation. But another strangely prophetic late 1864 incident would intrude on this prosperous household. Since her late teens, Mary Travers had been a patient of William Wilde. Depending on who one believed, their professional relationship soon morphed into something else. Her father was a medical professor at Trinity College and a family friend, and Dr. Wilde took an interest in her schooling, offered advice on her interest in a literary career, and even gave her small amounts of money. Initially, Mary was a guest in the Wilde household for family meals and a welcome participant in some of the outings with the Wilde children. But at some point, the Wildes attempted to distance themselves from Ms. Travers, William Wilde even twice providing money so that the girl could head to Australia, where two of her brothers had already emigrated. Mary took the money, but never left. Eventually, when the Wildes tried to completely sever ties with an individual who seemed increasingly demanding and even unstable, Mary Travers became overtly hostile. She wrote a scathing review of Lady Wilde's latest publication and even published a pamphlet of a fictionalized interaction with the Wildes claiming that Dr. Wilde raped her while she was under anesthetic and that Jane Wilde was an indolent, inattentive mother who lounged in bed all day. In what served as the equivalent of 19th century tabloid journalism, this publication was distributed throughout Dublin and made an emphatic public impression. But Mary Travers wasn't done. She directed newsboys to loudly peddle her pamphlet outside of a public speech given by Dr. Wilde and wrote letters to various Dublin newspapers about the doctor's illegitimate children and alleged sexual improprieties. 
Eventually, Jane Wilde wrote a pointed missive to Mary's father, outlining the harassment and implying that his daughter's behavior was essentially a lengthy attempt to extort money from the Wilds, a tactic that she vowed would never be successful. But this action only added to Mary Travers' determination. She took the letter and filed a lawsuit, claiming its language was libelous, listed Dr. Wilde as a co-defendant, as the doctor was married to the defendant, and demanded 2,000 pounds in damages. The jury trial featured some of the most high-profile legal practitioners in Ireland on both sides of the argument and lasted six days. In the end, Mary Travers' erratic personality was evident during her testimony, while Jane Wilde was composed and seemed reasonable. But the attorney for the plaintiff made an emotional appeal to the jury, and in the end they must have felt that neither side was blameless. The jury found that Mary Travers was libeled, but awarded a token sum. Unfortunately, this also meant that the Wilds would have to bear the legal expenses of both sides, eventually over 2,000 pounds. Even for the affluent doctor and his wife, this was a considerable sum of money, an extremely high profile and salacious proceeding. This affair was highly embarrassing and covered extensively in the press, so the Wilds' reputation would have suffered regardless of the outcome. Although much of Dublin society was sympathetic, the experience permanently dampened Dr. Wilde's perspective on city life, and he began to spend more time in his western Irish manor house, away from the gossip of the big city. Fortunately, during the trial and uproar, both Oscar and his brother were away at boarding school at the appropriately posh Portora Royal School in Enniskillen, about 100 miles north of Dublin. The case was so high profile that faculty and some students via their parents were aware of it. But the Christmas break shut down any real focus on the wild children, and by the time they returned, the matter was old news, and their education continued. Unfortunately, in February of 1867, real tragedy struck the family when Oscar's nine-year-old sister died from a condition involving a high fever that even today has never been fully explained. Although all of the Wilds were grief-stricken, Oscar was especially devastated, both very close to his sister and a precociously sensitive and intelligent child. Eventually, both he and his brother moved on from Portora as accomplished graduates and both headed to Trinity College in Dublin. Willie actually thought of as the more singularly promising of the two, the younger Oscar perpetually in his shadow. Although Wilde lived with his brother for much of his tenure at Trinity, he soon blossomed on his own into one of his class's most accomplished students. He became focused on ancient Greek literature, mentored by one of the school's most celebrated classical scholars, John P. Mahaffey. Mahaffey also was a connoisseur of the finer things in life, including vintage wine and cigars, and greatly influenced the 16-year-old on the concept of Epicurean living which for Wilde became a lifelong devotion. Wilde was the top student in his class in his first year of attendance, achieved the official designation of scholar in his second year, a classification conferred through rigorous and competitive examination. In his last year at Trinity, Wilde was the recipient of the Berkeley Gold Medal in Greek, an honor awarded to only one student, and considered the most prestigious academic honor at Trinity. 
He achieved this award after scoring the highest mark on an examination concerning a remarkably obscure treatise on ancient Greek poets. To cap off his performance, he received a partial scholarship to attend Magdalen College, Oxford, one of two such scholarships awarded by examination as his father, William Wilde, was not in the best of health as of the end of 1874, and his practice was not as prosperous. This additional funding was especially helpful. His brother had already graduated and proceeded to study law in London, additional expenses for the Wilde family. At Oxford, Wilde continued his immersion in the classics. The school was definitely a step up in class, his fellow students having matriculated at Eton, Harrow, or similarly upper-class English preparatory environments. Many were also comparatively much wealthier than the modestly affluent Irish native. A later journalistic account described him as initially naive, embarrassed, with a convulsive laugh, a lisp, an Irish accent. This account was written by John Bodley, who eventually became one of Wilde's closest Oxford friends and a co-participant in student extracurricular activity including theater, meals at the Mitre, a local inn and student hangout, and even joining the local Masonic Lodge, for Wilde only a temporary pursuit. Gradually, Wilde adapted to this novel and challenging environment, branching out from the classics into studying art and the Renaissance. He also struggled with his predilection towards converting to Catholicism, but hesitated, knowing that his father would probably disown him. This concern became immaterial when Dr. William Wilde, in ill health for years, passed away in April of 1876. The estate was far less generous than expected, Sir William having already spent much of his assets on the upkeep of his illegitimate children and also maintaining the Wilde household. Most of the homes he owned were heavily mortgaged and would not provide his two legitimate children with enough for financial independence. Although disappointed by this development, Wilde persevered in his studies and eventually achieved high marks, as well as the Newdigate Prize, awarded annually for the best composition in English verse by an undergraduate, in Wilde's case, a poem about the Italian city of Ravenna, which he visited in 1877. Other recipients have included both John Ruskin and John Buchan. After graduation, Wilde returned to Dublin, with no concrete plans for his future, save for an unfocused interest in teaching at the university level, hopefully at Oxford. Although his mother felt that he might live thriftily on the modest inheritance of property and money left to him by his father, Oscar had no such intentions. Already he quickly spent any interest payments he received on fine clothing, furnishings, and cut flowers, with no thought for the future. He left Ireland for London, and moved into a tight street Chelsea address that was the home of Frank Miles, an artist acquaintance of Wilde's from his Oxford days. Although Miles never attended Oxford, he was the grandson of Philip Miles, a multimillionaire banker, and was wealthy and well-connected. Miles had already sketched a famous portrait of the high-profile socialite and eventual acting sensation Lily Langtree, and the artist introduced her to Wilde when she came to visit the tight street address. It is said that it was Wilde who encouraged her acting career. They had a lengthy and romantically ambiguous relationship, although Lily eventually left him in her wake and involved herself with more prominent men. 
including the Prince of Wales and eventual Edward VII. Wilde also became acquainted with James McNeil Whistler, who also lived on Tite Street. While hobnobbing with London celebrities, Wilde also found the time to pursue creative endeavors. A play entitled Vera, or The Nihilist, was written, circulated privately, and in 1881, plans were made to bring Vera to the stage in London. But these plans collapsed, and it was not until 1883 that the play was actually performed in New York. Wilde also compiled a set of poems and contracted to have them published. Typically, the author, Wilde, was responsible for all production costs and design, and the publisher, in this case a small entity known as David Bogue, received a small share of any profit. All 750 copies of the first edition sold out, and the collection was also produced in the United States, also selling a modest number of copies. Unfortunately, the reviews were negative, and in one case even controversial. When the secretary of the Oxford Union Society, a prestigious debating society affiliated with the University of Oxford, requested a copy, Wilde dutifully responded, even inscribing the volume with a simple dedication. As all such acquisitions of the Union Library needed to be formally announced at a meeting of the society's members, one of the members, Oliver Elton, actually formally objected to the book's library inclusion. Although he trashed the contents of the book as immoral and vapid, that was not his main objection. He maintained that Wilde plagiarized as many as 60 poets in the verses in his book, specifically mentioning Shakespeare, John Donne, and Lord Byron, among others, and demanded that the acceptance of the book be put to a formal vote. After a spirited debate and a decisive vote, the book was rejected. It was returned to Wilde with an apology, who typically responded by pointing out that the society requested the copy to begin with. The underlying current and backlash was most likely due to some of the poem's symbolism or opaquely describing what was considered at the time inappropriate and licentious behavior. And Wilde already had a reputation among both his fellow students and professors as an individual who lived on the edge, to say the least. But the controversy and Wilde's poems, some of which contained latently sexual themes, brought him great attention and visibility. The uproar in the book of poems itself even affected Wilde's residency with Frank Miles. Miles' father was a reverend, was aware of the book, and also aware that Wilde lived in his son's household. He wrote two pointed letters to his son, basically stating that Frank should kick Oscar Wilde out of the house. When those went unacknowledged, he wrote directly to Wilde, asserted that his poems were immoral, would harm the soul of anyone reading them, and requested that he end his association with his son. He then recontacted Frank and told him that in the name of morality, he must sever any relationship with Oscar. Miles basically lived off of the generous wealth of his parents and was not in any financial position to ignore this demand. When he discussed this with Wilde, indicating that he had no choice other than to accede to these demands, Oscar exploded. Knowing a lot more about Miles' proclivities, especially concerning underage girls and possibly Miles' lover, he demanded to know if Miles intended to obey his father in the alleged name of decency and morality. When Miles meekly indicated that he would, 
Oscar dramatically responded with a sentence he later incorporated into the picture of Dorian Gray, quote, I will leave you, I will go now, and I will never speak to you again as long as I live, unquote. With that, Wilde went to his upstairs room, packed all of his possessions into a heavy trunk, but instead of having the container carried downstairs by porters, he nudged it over the banister and let it drop into the home's main hallway, the chest crashing down on an antique table, crushing it to bits. Marching out of the house with his luggage, he slammed the door behind him and left. Because his mother had recently relocated to London, Wilde did have the luxury of showing up at her front door. He quickly rented some furnished rooms in Mayfair, near Grosvenor Square, but he continued to live off an ever-decreasing fund of money. Learning the harsh economic realities of life as a poet. For Frank Miles, this break seems to have been a harbinger of doom. His father died shortly after this incident. And in 1883, Miles seems to have suffered some form of a nervous breakdown, possibly the result of advanced syphilis. His physical and mental deterioration continued until he was confined in an insane asylum where he died in 1891, aged 39. His medical care completely depleted his inherited assets, once valued at present-day millions of dollars, to nothing. Neither Oscar Wilde or Lily Langtree ever visited his grave. By the middle of 1881, Wilde's only real artistic prospect that showed any possibilities at all was the eventually postponed London production of Vera. But then, a most unexpected opportunity practically fell into Wilde's lap. The Gilbert and Sullivan opera Patience debuted to great acclaim in London, and a theatrical producer, Richard Doyley Cart, intended to produce the opera in New York. The opera was a satire on the aesthetic movement, the then cutting-edge idea that art did not need to serve some moral or ethical purpose. It merely needed to be beautiful. Art for art's sake. Cart understood that this viewpoint, originating in Great Britain, would not be understood as well by American audiences. Hoping to better educate potential patrons, and also a producer of lecture tours, which were much more prevalent in the 19th century than they are today, he hit upon the idea of a series of lectures by an individual well-versed in this topic. As this idea practically originated with Walter Pater, literally one of Wilde's Oxford professors, and Wilde considered himself an aesthete in both his art and lifestyle, he was the perfect individual to deliver such a lecture. Fortunately for Wilde, when Cart began asking his various theatrical contacts if they could suggest an appropriate lecturer, Oscar's good friend Sarah Bernhardt mentioned him. On October 1st, Wilde responded to a very unspecific cable inquiring upon his interest in a series of 50 readings. Not sure of the content he would present, but not particularly caring, Wilde indicated that he was interested. After some back and forth on specifics, Wilde sailed for America, arriving in New York on January 2, 1882. Oscar, who received a great deal of attention in London society columns and whose tour was widely publicized in both Britain and the U.S., was swamped by journalists even before he was able to clear customs and disembark, the press actually hiring boats to interview Wilde offshore. Wishing to represent himself as an aesthete in appearance as well as philosophical perspective, 
Wilde greeted the press in a full-length green topcoat, trimmed with fur on the cuffs and collars, a similarly colored and trimmed rounded green hat on his head, hair much longer than was typical. A large collared shirt with light blue tie was visible underneath this outer layer. He also wore a large seal ring with a classical Greek profile. Although the subsequent press, both locally and abroad, was mixed, it was extensive and generated excitement. Supposedly, it was on this occasion that Wilde, upon a customer's agent request for a declaration, responded, quote, I have nothing to declare except my genius, unquote. Although no contemporary account of such a remark exists, it certainly conformed to Wilde's ever-increasing self-confidence. Oscar wasted no time in attending various luncheons and receptions with high-profile members of New York society, as well as a performance of Patience, his celebrity already so powerful that he needed to exit the theater through a side door to avoid spectators trying to get a glimpse of him. This local enthusiasm translated into box office success. Wilde's first lecture, scheduled for January 9th, sold all 1,500 tickets, including standing room. Entitled The Artistic Character of the British Renaissance, Oscar delivered his lecture as a speech, as if he were a candidate, and when he concluded with, We spend our days looking for the secret of life. Well, the secret of life is art. The audience applauded resoundingly. Wilde's next stop on the tour was Philadelphia. On the way was Camden, New Jersey, and a visit with Walt Whitman, another poet considered to be unconventional. He continued through Washington, D.C., Boston, and Cambridge, meeting celebrities ranging from Oliver Wendell Holmes to Henry James and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Everywhere, his almost eccentric clothing, including knee breeches with black stockings and brightly colored jackets of every design, attracted attention, not all of it positive, from his contemporaries, and especially not from the press. But sellout houses accompanied him everywhere he went, and the tour, initially planned for no more than four months, was extended first through May and then until the end of the year. Wilde's itinerary included every major city in the Midwest, Deep South, and California, and such outposts as Fremont, Iowa, and Pawtucket, Rhode Island. He even spent much of the month of October in Canada and in the provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Perhaps his most unusual audience was a group of silver miners who attended his presentation at the Tabor Opera House in Leadville, Colorado. Appropriately, Wilde fascinated this particular audience with tales of the Renaissance silversmith Benvenuto Cellini, among other things, and afterwards some of the locals conveyed him to one of the many local taverns, intent on plying him with whiskey and getting him embarrassingly intoxicated. Wilde responded by drinking an impressive amount of alcohol and then was taken to the largest nearby silver mine where he was lowered underground in what he later described as a bucket. He further endeared himself by eating a meal with other miners, smoking a cigar, and drinking even more whiskey. From there, it was on to another saloon where Wilde continued to impress by holding his own. At the end of October, Wilde made his way back to New York where he stayed in a succession of hotels and rented rooms. He personally greeted Lily Langtree when she arrived in New York, the first stop on her own theatrical tour of the U.S. Wilde also spent time negotiating with various actors and producers to bring both Vera and a play he was currently writing, The Duchess of Padua. By the beginning of 1883, 
He had contracts and an advance for both works with the actual dates of performance to be determined. With plenty of cash on hand, he headed to Paris after briefly touching base in London. He spent three months finishing The Duchess of Padua and sending it off to Mary Anderson, the actress who initially showed an interest in this piece that Wilde agreed to write expressly for her. Although Wilde did receive an advance, his contract stipulated that the bulk of his payment was conditional on the actress's final acceptance of the material. Mary Anderson quickly cabled back a negative response, rejecting the play with complete finality. By May, Wilde was back in London, living at his mother's house, and already broke again. His other play was not scheduled to begin performances until August. Upon his return, Oscar immediately renewed a social connection with Constance Lloyd, the daughter of an attorney and a member of a socially prominent and wealthy family, and a woman he met in 1881. He courted her formally and even took the step of cutting his hair, but understood that based on his current economic circumstances, he was not in a position to propose. After several months and a few lectures in London, Wilde set out for America, hoping that Vera would propel him to greater literary success. The play debuted on August 20th to a sellout crowd, but scathing reviews and even personal criticisms of Wilde and the leading lady, Marie Prescott, from such publications as the New York Times, which repeatedly criticized the play, and even in its editorial section called Wilde, very much a charlatan, wholly an amateur, and his play valueless. The play closed after a week, and William Purzell, Marie Prescott's husband, and the financial backer of the production lost a bundle on the failure. When Wilde returned to London in October, he was greeted with caricatures lampooning him in such publications as Punch. His only option was to return to the lecture circuit in England, this time his topic focused on his perceptions of the United States. Oscar Wilde also remained focused on Constance Lloyd. In Dublin, for a series of lectures, he was invited to the home of relatives of Constance's mother, Adelaide Atkinson Lloyd. There, Oscar and Constance spent time together and socialized for the next few days, Constance attending both of Wilde's Dublin lectures. The couple were left alone in the drawing room of the Atkinson home, the same room where Constance's father proposed to her mother. Here, also Oscar Wilde proposed to Constance Lloyd. She accepted immediately and was described as insanely happy. Not everyone was equally enthusiastic. A letter from her brother, written before the news of the engagement was shared with the rest of the family, contained his doubts about Wilde as an appropriate suitor, and even hinted that there were rumors concerning Wilde's behavior. Constance responded to her brother by brushing such concerns aside and reiterated her love for Wilde, requesting also that her brother share her enthusiasm. Otho Lloyd complied, quickly penning a note to Oscar Wilde, congratulating him and welcoming him to the family. Constance's paternal grandfather, Horatio Lloyd, the family patriarch, had always enjoyed Oscar's company and liked him well enough, but was skeptical of his financial fitness. He raised the topic specifically, even asking Oscar if he had any debts. Wilde responded honestly, explaining that he did owe a total of 1,500 pounds to various creditors, but he explained that he had already paid off 300 pounds of this debt and his lectures were booked through into 1885 and added the potential of his literary efforts. 
Lloyd was already paying his granddaughter 250 pounds a year, again a substantial amount of money in Victorian England. She also would receive a substantial amount in the event of Horatio's death from his estate. But, wanting to alleviate any immediate financial concerns and believing Wilde to be sincere, he set up a trust fund for Constance of 5,000 pounds that would pay her an increased 400 pounds a year. But, he did hedge his bets a bit, telling Oscar that the wedding should be postponed until Wilde was able to pay off another 300 pounds. The young man assured him that he would do that by April of 1884, and with that Horatio Lloyd was satisfied. Spending much of the first three months of 1884 on the lecture circuit, Wilde then began to plan his wedding, now pushed back until the end of May. He and Constance also took out a 21-year lease on a property at what was then 16 Tite Street, the wedding took place on May 29th in an Anglican cathedral in Sussex Gardens, the event not publicized. Wilde now a celebrity that would have generated unwanted attention from both the press and public. Even before the marriage, Oscar was already dipping into the corpus of Constance's trust fund to ensure that their new home was furnished up to his aesthetic standards. After a modest reception, the bride and groom headed to Paris and a suite of rooms in a hotel overlooking the Tuileries. There they took in Sarah Bernhardt in Macbeth and an exhibit of Whistler's painting at the Salon, as well as a raft of lunches and dinners with a diverse group of writers, artists, journalists, and intellectuals. Although dazzled, Constance Wilde must have been taken aback by her husband's spendthrift ways. Upon her return to London, she mentioned to her brother, that she intended to get a job. This attempted financial solvency was nipped in the bud when she discovered in September that she was pregnant. The redecoration of 16 Tite Street was turning into a money pit affair. The house was not ready when they returned from their honeymoon, and Wilde fired the first builder and almost wound up in court when he refused to pay the bill. It was January of 1885 before the house redecoration was completed, the Wilds living out of rented rooms in the interim. But, once settled, Oscar and Constance seemed to settle down into typical domesticity. Their first son, Cyril, was born June 5, 1885, and their second son, Vivian, was born November 3, 1886. With a need to support his family, Wilde turned to journalism, getting published regularly in the Pall Mall Gazette, and then signed on as the editor of The Ladies' World in April of 1887 immediately changing the name of the publication to The Woman's World and attempting to upgrade the quality of content from merely fashion to contemporary female issues. Although Wilde was a doting and enthusiastic father, he quickly tired of his sexual relationship with his wife. Relatives of Constance have related that as early as two and a half years after their marriage and the birth of his two sons, Wilde ceased having sex with his wife it is theorized that Oscar maintained that he had a recurrence of syphilis that he supposedly contracted when he was a student at Oxford, and therefore sex was dangerous and celibacy the responsible course of action. It may have been merely a coincidence, but it was also around this time that Wilde was introduced to Robert Ross, a 17-year-old student. Ross was believed to be Wilde's first homosexual lover, and after the relationship ended, the two remained extremely close friends. Until 1895, Wilde and Constance would continue to cohabit, existing in a parallel universe, where they pursued separate interests, Wilde's wife completely unaware of his sexual proclivities and behavior. In 1888, 
Wilde stopped lecturing and began to focus on composing short stories and long fiction. He resigned from the women's world, chafing against the magazine's owners, who constantly refused to spend on some of the more expensive contributors that Wilde wanted to publish, and constantly second-guessed his editorial decisions. The magazine folded shortly afterwards. He also stopped writing reviews, thinking that his time was better spent on other literary endeavors. This shift in creativity resulted in a collection of short stories entitled The Happy Prince and other stories that bore a resemblance to fairy tales in the style of Hans Christian Andersen. In late August of 1889, Wilde was invited to lunch with an editor, Joseph Stoddart of Lippincott Magazine, a prominent American literary publication. Also in attendance was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Stoddart was looking for fictional material and commissioned both writers to compose novellas to be published in both American and British editions of Lippincott's. In early 1890, Conan Doyle promptly submitted The Sign of the Four, his second Sherlock Holmes novel, but it was not until June of 1890 that Wilde submitted 100 pages of his work, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Stoddard felt compelled to remove what he believed to be any homosexual allusions and characterization of women as mistresses. When the novel was published in book form in 1891, Wilde added several chapters but kept Stoddard's edits. Oscar also included a preface that addressed criticism already forthcoming after the initial publication of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Wilde felt compelled to provide this type of material as a result of the critical backlash to the novella, even in slightly watered-down form. Fundamentally, the picture of Dorian Gray is about a man, Dorian Gray, who wishes to remain young while his true appearance is reflected in a portrait painted by an artist admirer. With each act of immorality, personal cruelty, especially in his romantic relationships, and even murder, Gray's portrait becomes hideously decrepit, reflecting his true moral and physical state, while Gray himself remains youthfully handsome over the course of many years. Finally, believing that destroying the painting is his only route back to salvation, Dorian Gray, in an impulsive rage, stabs the picture. Hearing a dreadful scream from the normally locked room, his servants eventually forced open the balcony windows, only to find an old, withered, decrepit man stabbed dead through the heart, recognizable only through the rings on his fingers. The painting was now transformed back into the once handsome and younger Dorian Gray. Critics not only panned the book itself as indulgently decadent, they also labeled it as dangerously immoral and corruptive, especially to younger readers. The book also reinforced Wilde's public image as a hedonistic, possibly even perverted individual despite his recent attempts to restore a respectable public image. Still, the uproar further heightened Wilde's profile on the contemporary literary scene and prompted requests for more plays. One such request came from actor and theater manager George Alexander and prompted a suddenly motivated Wilde to seclude himself in the Lake District in the summer and early fall of 1891, composing what eventually was produced as Lady Windermere's Fan, Having written tragedies previously, Wilde made the decision to switch to comedy, witty social satire, something he could easily develop, in this case a send-up of Victorian morals and adultery that contained both humorous and serious perspectives. 
Alexander liked the finished script, and the two men worked meticulously together to produce Wilde's first great theatrical success. On opening night, the audience response was so enthusiastic that not only were there repeated curtain calls for the cast, but demands for Wilde as well, even requesting that he speak. His brief remarks were typically witty and typically self-aggrandizing. Ladies and gentlemen, I have enjoyed this evening immensely. The actors have given us a charming rendering of a delightful play, and your appreciation has been most intelligent. I congratulate you on the great success of your performance, which persuades me that you think almost as highly of the play as I do myself. As Wilde had taken a percentage of the receipts, as opposed to a mere flat fee, he earned over a million present value dollars for the first year of performances alone. Not being able to stay away from tragedy, Wilde then returned to the genre with Salome, the biblically-themed story of the woman who demanded the beheading of John the Baptist. Possibly because Wilde already understood that the play was potentially scandalous, he wrote the original version in French and presented it to Sarah Bernhardt, who agreed to perform it in London in 1892. Unfortunately, as all such presentations in Britain required approval by the official government censor, the play was banned. Bernhardt vowed to present it in France, but this did not occur until 1896. It would not be until the 20th century that the play appeared in Great Britain, initially in private settings, unavailable to the general public until the 30s. Wilde was so outraged that he threatened to leave England and renounce his citizenship and move to France, but this bluster eventually died down, and he returned to comedies, producing in succession A Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, and his most notable play, The Importance of Being Earnest, universally lauded by even the most previously skeptical critics as perhaps the greatest British theatrical comedy of all time. Produced again with George Alexander and debuting at Alexander's St. James Theatre on February 14, 1895, it established Wilde as British society's most celebrated literary figure. But just as Wilde reached the heights of public popularity, his private life resulted in his complete personal ruin and professional destruction. Although his vow of celibacy applied to his relationship with his wife, it did not preclude Wilde from consorting sexually with men on a frequent basis that included what were termed rent boys, young working-class males typically in their late teens. Wilde was also emotionally involved with Lord Alfred Douglas, nicknamed Bosey, a student at Oxford when Wilde was introduced to him. The two began a tempestuous, lengthy relationship that was also quite indiscreet. This was problematic as the British government had passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, wide-ranging legislation that increased penalties for various sexual acts, raised the age of consent to 16 years of age, and defined homosexual acts between men as a, quote, gross indecency, unquote, punishable by two years in prison with hard labor. No technicality, this behavior was considered highly offensive by Victorian society, so immoral that would not even be specifically defined within the legal code. Nevertheless, Douglas quickly introduced Wilde to London's netherworld of homosexual brothels, heavy drinking, and general debauchery, and Oscar was more than willing to indulge his younger lover by footing the bill.
The third participant in this utter tragedy was John Sholto Douglas, the ninth Marcus of Queensbury. Aggressively masculine and a sportsman as opposed to his sons, the elder Douglas is credited with creating what are known as boxing's Queensbury rules, the ten basic rules that govern boxing even today. Despite great wealth, Douglas was extremely hostile and possibly mentally ill. Even before his dispute with Oscar Wilde, Douglas was already involved with a potentially embarrassing fracas that involved the highest levels of the British government. A member of the House of Lords as a Scottish representative peer for eight years, Douglas, upon his nomination for the same office in 1880, refused to take a religiously based oath of allegiance to the Queen. An avowed atheist, the Marcus stubbornly refused and was not allowed to take his seat, ending his participation in parliamentary government. When in 1893, his eldest son and heir, Francis, 27 years old, was given an appointment to the House of Lords, prompted by the Prime Minister himself, the Earl of Rosebery, Douglas became enraged by what he considered a slight engineered to personally insult him. The situation was exacerbated by rumors of a homosexual relationship between the Earl of Rosebery and Francis Douglas. When Douglas served as his private secretary, rumors of the prime minister's bisexuality, common knowledge at the time. On October 19, 1894, the newly engaged Francis Douglas joined a hunting party led by his fiancée's uncle at a remote lodge in western England. After Douglas separated from the main group, eventually a gunshot was heard, and Douglas was found dead in a nearby field. The death eventually ruled accidental, but most observers believed it to be suicide. And John Douglas, thinking that it might have even been murder to cover up his son's relationship with the prime minister. In any case, his son's death hardened the Marcus of Queensbury towards Oscar Wilde, thinking this another example of an older man taking advantage of the younger and naive Alfred Douglas. That Alfred was anything but innocent in this matter was of little consequence. His father became obsessed with the idea of embarrassing and destroying Oscar Wilde, believing this was the only way to save his wayward child. The Marcus had already attempted to forcefully persuade his son to break it off with Wilde. First, he threatened to permanently cut off any money and even disowning his son, a powerful threat as Douglas had dropped out of Oxford and spent most of his time drinking and gambling. Alfred Douglas responded with a telegram stating, What a funny little man you are. Then the Marcus, known to attack people with a horsewhip, threatened him with a thrashing and more ominously with making a public scandal in a way you little dream of. His son continued taunting him, sending him a note claiming to detest his father and threatening to use a revolver in response to any physical threats. Getting nowhere, the Marcus then decided to take matters up with Wilde personally. On June 30, 1894, Wilde returned to his Tite Street home, unaware that waiting for him in his home library was the Marcus of Queensbury and a friend. A very contentious conversation ensued, with Wilde initially demanding whether Douglas would personally repeat his allegation that Wilde had committed sodomy with his son. Douglas hedged specifically, but did respond by saying that Wilde certainly acted like he was homosexual and followed up with specifics of Wilde's recent activities, including that both Wilde and Bosey were kicked out of the posh Savoy Hotel for their behavior, that Wilde was blackmailed over a compromising letter, and screaming obscenities at Wilde before finally declaring, If I catch you and my son together in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. 
Wilde claimed to have responded by stating that he would answer such behavior with firearms and kick Douglas out of his house, instructing his servants never to admit the man again. Wilde consulted attorneys as to appropriate courses of action, and a harsh letter was drawn up and sent to the Marcus, requesting written apologies to both Wilde and Douglas, and even threatened to release letters that the Marcus had written to his son libeling the politicians Gladstone and Roseberry. John Douglas didn't budge, refusing to apologize and denying any libel of any politician. He continued to haunt certain night spots, hoping to catch Wilde and his son together in person. He also indignantly spread accusations concerning Wilde's illegal behavior among any high society acquaintances he came in contact with. While Douglas had a reputation as a bully and a hothead, an undercurrent of resentment against Wilde and his flamboyant lifestyle and anti-establishment attitudes already predisposed more conservative upper-crust members of London society to loathe him. As immaturely antagonistic as Bosey Douglas was with his father, he was utterly inconsiderate in his relationship with Oscar Wilde. He routinely stayed at luxury hotels in London and sent the bill to Oscar. When they partied together in Paris, Wilde was expected to entirely pick up the tab. After Constance and the children returned to London at summer's end so the Wilde boys could return to boarding school, Wilde also meant to stay at their summer seaside rental additionally to keep working on his next play. Predictably, Bosey showed up and the two men eventually made their way to the Hotel Metropole in Brighton. Lord Douglas immediately came down with the flu and Wilde stayed with him until he felt better. Days later, when Wilde caught the same bug, Douglas bailed and went out on the town, returning noisily at all hours of the morning. When Wilde gently remonstrated the younger man over his general behavior, Douglas flew into a rage of such fury that the next morning Wilde evacuated to a downstairs common room, actually fearing that he was in physical danger. Bosey decided to leave, but not before scavenging any money lying around the room. A few days later, on the occasion of Oscar's 40th birthday, Lord Alfred sent Wilde a nasty letter, needling him about the huge tab he had run up at the Metropole, and similarly snide insults, leading up to the declaration that when you are not on your pedestal, you are not interesting. Wilde resolved to make a complete break with Douglas, something that friends and associates had it suggested for years. But Wilde made this resolution in the past, only to reconcile with Douglas shortly thereafter. This time it was Bosey's brother's tragic death by gunshot that prompted this change of heart. Either way, the Marcus of Queensbury was relentless in continuing his harassment of Wilde. He purchased a ticket to the February 14, 1895 premiere of The Importance of Being Earnest, only to have the pass canceled by George Alexander. He showed up anyway with a prizefighter associate and a collection of vegetables, clearly intent on publicly hurling them at Wilde and ruining the playwright's triumphant evening. Stopped by security, he left his vegetable arsenal with theater management to ensure that Wilde was aware of his intent. For hours, he hung around the theater, shouting insults meant for Wilde to guests and staff alike. Thirteen years earlier, the Marcus nastily interrupted a play by Tennyson, so he was quite capable of extreme behavior. On February 28, 1895, Wilde entered a private club, of which he was a member, the Albemarle Club. He was hailed by the doorman, who handed him an envelope, stating that the enclosed card was dropped off ten days earlier. 
Inside was a card embossed with a Marcus of Queensberry's name and written in script, for Oscar Wilde, posing somdomite, the last word misspelled, but written with clear intent. Only the card was delivered. It was judiciously placed in an envelope by the doorman and could have easily been seen by staff, as well as members, which included women. Wilde's attorney had counseled him that the only way to stop someone like John Douglas was to successfully prosecute him for libel. Here, Wilde believed was the opportunity necessary to pursue such an action. First, he spoke with his wife, who was outwardly oblivious to his sexual adventures, updating her on developments and asking for her support should he publicly seek legal relief. After that discussion, Wilde, who spent less and less time actually living at Tite Street, headed to his lodging at the Avondale Hotel in Piccadilly. He had summoned Robert Ross to confer about the way forward, Ross no longer his lover but a trusted friend and confidant. Unfortunately, Lord Alfred Douglas was present as well, and he became excited when he heard of the new developments. All three men were enthusiastic about moving forward with a legal demand to prosecute the Marcus of Queensbury for libel, a serious offense. They reasoned that the Marcus would have to prove that Wilde was a sodomite, and that his accusation was made in the public interest. They also believed that they could describe their own relationship as a friendship and merely platonic. Without one or the other admitting certain behavior, John Douglas had no case. Upon meeting with Wilde's attorney Humphreys, the lawyer asked Wilde flat out if there was any truth to the allegation. Wilde categorically denied it. The only other issue was money. Wilde, despite the prospect of two high-profile plays about to return a sizable amount of cash, was typically so strapped that he was being served demand notices by the courts. Douglas chimed in that money was no issue, that his family, especially his mother, after enduring a hideous divorce from the Marcus, was only too enthusiastic to finance the case. With that, the legal process moved forward. The Marcus of Queensbury was quickly arrested and brought before a magistrate and was charged with publishing a criminal libel. Instead of fear, John Douglas seemed pleased by the proceedings, claiming that he was glad to have brought matters to a legal confrontation. Wild solicitor Humphreys quickly swallowed up 900 pounds of fees and retainers. The Queensbury camp nowhere to be found. Most of this money came from advances from George Alexander on future play receipts. After a preliminary hearing bound the case over for trial, Bosey persuaded Oscar that this was the perfect time for a trip to Monte Carlo. Some of Oscar's jewelry was pawned, and off the two went, Oscar once again picking up the check. After a week of Alfred Douglas losing at the tables, they returned to London and even more legal bills, this to retain as lead counsel the esteemed Sir Edward Clark. This time with Lady Queensbury in Italy and Percy Douglas, Alfred's older brother, out of town, Oscar had to go to friends for a short-term loan, which he promised to pay back in a matter of days. But it was at this point that close friends of Wilde began to counsel him to drop the case and leave the country. Frank Harris and George Bernard Shaw even mapped out a course of action over lunch at the Café Royale, recommending that he flee to France. Harris might even have known from personal experience that Wilde was not being honest about his sexuality and cautioned Oscar that a British jury was completely unpredictable. While Wilde mulled that over, Lord Alfred Douglas showed up and immediately threw cold water on the idea. Such advice shows you are no friend of Oscar's, he seethed before leaving in a huff. Oscar felt compelled to do the same, also leaving with, 
It is not friendly of you, Frank. It is really not friendly. There was no record as to who picked up the bill. Wilde should have listened to his friends when the attorneys for the Marcus of Queensbury filed briefs attempting to refute the charge. They not only, as expected, cited the decadence and immorality of some of Wilde's literary works, they also listed specific names, dates, and locations where young men, some of them in their teens, were solicited to allow Wilde to perform acts of gross indecency. The defense did not assert that actual sodomy occurred. That would have been much harder to prove. Placed any witnesses admitting such behavior in a precarious legal position and possibly subject to prosecution themselves. Over three years of information was presented in the document, clearly an indication that the Marcus of Queensbury did have detectives painstakingly observing Wilde, as well as interviewing any potential witnesses. These latest revelations caused his theatrical partner, George Alexander, to also now recommend that he flee the country. Wilde knew that was an admission of guilt, and he still clung to the hope that the Marcus's case was just bluster and that none of these witnesses could actually be produced at trial. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Oscar Wilde. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Oscar Wilde by Richard Ellman, Oscar Wilde, A Life by Matthew Sturgis, and Oscar Wilde, The Unrepentant Years by Nicholas Frankel. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.